0: What's up guys, and welcome back to the part two of our podcast. I'm Dan, alongside with Chris, and today's discussion is going to take a deeper look at the reasons why artists use drugs as a way to enhance their content and create a process. We also want to answer the question as to why the use of drugs enhance the content that artists make, or does the exact opposite? By looking at and comparing a few musicians who utilize drugs within their craft, we'll start to analyze the things that came out of their processes.
1: Before we start our discussion, we'd like to first talk about StarCast. StarCast is a mobile app for producing podcasts to discover new ones. Their mission is to democratize the podcast industry. StarCast is unique compared to other podcast platforms because it's a one-stop shop for learning how to produce and consume podcast content.
0: Drug use within the world of music has been a huge topic of discussion since the 1930s and possibly even before then. There seems to be an underlying association between music and substance use that goes back centuries. From genres such as folk, rap, rock, and pop, all sorts of substances have been used and experimented with within this world of music, as well as written about within the content that musicians share with us. The feelings that are emitted out of songs that one can tell are a discussion of drugs, may entice some listeners while pushing away others. The call for censorship on types of songs that include lyrics about drug use has also become a factor for many musicians that include content that pertains to substances as well as their own substance experiences. The artwork that comes out of using substances can vary and create new and thought-provoking music for both the content creator and consumer. So Chris, let's kind of jump into this a little bit. Uh, Last week, we talked about musicians like Amy Winehouse, Mac Miller, who else did we talk about? Jimi Hendrix. Um, And a lot of their music, you know, had a lot to do with what they were personally going through, things that were happening on with the world and such like that. But what do you think was the exact experience that they were having with substance abuse? And was it related or relating to their music that they were putting out?
1: So I think there are a lot of different uh, contributing factors to drug use specifically within um, the music industry. Uh, however, we sort of honed in and identified various artists that clearly have been and were using to sort of deal with some emotional turmoil, whether it be um, you know depression or this just innate anxiety that they're feeling. And it often, for example, like if we look at Amy Winehouse, um, was a direct result of her work. Uh, you know, Amy was never somebody that sort of got along and went with um, society, the societal standard that, you know, you have to be good and proper and know what you want at a young age, um, sort of just go through elementary school, not rebelling yeah. and stuff like that. But she was very two shoes, but Yeah, exactly. She no, wasn't she, goody two shoes at no, all. I mean, yeah. you know, she's this wild, uh, sorta of, sort of punk attitude person with a great voice. Um, yeah. and early on especially in like elementary school, we see her Um, rebelling against the system because she knew that she wanted to be in theater and music and that was her thing and she knew that she wasn't going to take no for an answer Um, so once they finally directed her toward uh, a theater program
0: and was it her parents that directed her or was I, it a I manager or
1: were, were sort of working with a school and, I, and she yeah. did have one they were group.
0: trying to find like an outlet for her and i think they found she found that with her voice and uh not only acting but uh with music really and that's where the direction she really took right because
1: because she wasn't just singing no i mean uh, obviously she was she was acting um and and later on really sort of leaned uh heavily toward the music industry yeah. because she had an incredible voice that was unmatched um, and sort of as she grows in her career becomes much more significant and relevant um, to the music industry specifically um, she starts to have to deal with stage presence and and sort of anxieties that directly correlated to the amount of people in the room that were there to watch her sing and she, and she was struggling with this so to sort of take the edge off in her early days she just you know, hop in and out of pubs, like hang on at pubs. After and the
0: that was a normal thing to do in London. Yeah,
1: I mean, it, the pub culture yeah. in London is undeniably significant. I yeah. mean, it, it's been significant since the end of World War II. Yeah. I mean, prior as well, but I mean... But when
0: you're immersed in it, especially as a musician who is starting off your career, you want to take the edge off. You want to not exactly <laughs> be in the starlight I mean, and the stardom and... That's something that she did. And uh, I think I'm unsure because I'm not as well versed in knowing about her as much as you've done the research on her. But in some of her music, is there anything that she really talks about and sings about that you can kind of feel like where she's coming from and what she's going through with her drinking and her, you know, the stresses of uh, living this rock star kind of life? So, of course, um,
1: later on, she writes a
0: song called Rehab.
1: They tried to make me go to rehab, I said no, no, no. Um, which is ultimately a song about her addiction to alcohol and her issues with substance abuse, specifically pertaining to alcohol, of course. Um, let's well, cu- let's quickly go back toward um, when she was dating Blake Sybil. So essentially, Blake came into her life around um, the cusp of her fame when she really, really made it big. Um, They they sort of had this on and off relationship, but Blake himself was sort of this lost soul. I mean, he was using heroin. He was was definitely into hardcore drugs. Uh, She actually met him in a night out in the town, Mm -hmm. in London specifically. And um, as her relationship developed with Blake, that's when she really started to... Experiment with drugs okay. of uh, you know multi variability, um, so they break up. Amy's alcoholism becomes worse. Um, she was not only dealing with her career, but now she was dealing with this breakup. So she felt as if um, you know she wasn't good enough to even live a normal life, and I think that really took a toll on her. Uh, so she starts drinking and drinking and And drinking and is
0: she talking about it in her music or is it just something that she's really not exploiting within like the way that she can create content
1: well i mean like her song rehab i mean like they try to make me go to rehab but i say no 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 yeah you know she sings it on and on and again essentially what she's talking about is the fact that her father her family and her friends um, were trying to get her to go to rehab to deal with her issues uh, pertaining to alcohol uh, and this sort of started to come out after she was getting on stage, uh, absolutely shit faced and in a drunken stupor, couldn't sing, was slurring her words, yeah, and being booed off a of stage. Yeah, and this no, is right after this her is what hit yeah. single or not single, but her hit song Rehab, which was literally about her her um, grappling with this substance issue and the repercussions that this substance issue brought. Um, with her relationships
0: yeah so i think definitely like that is a reflection upon what was going on in her life uh specifically and it was just this was a way to basically tell her fans like what she was going through that she wasn't getting help and she wasn't reaching out for it she was almost being pushed into trying to get help and the her almost like her rehab is writing this song yeah i think um so i think what we need to
1: focus on especially with all the artists that we talk about is they're using um, media and music as a mode of communication that something is wrong with their life. Yeah. Um, what they're doing is they're, they're taking this genuine initiative and, and putting it out in front of the public. And I think that's why people really jump onto their their um, songs, yeah. whether it be like uh, Winehouse, Kurt Cobain, um, Biggie Smalls, um, it's because they're singing about things that are real. Yeah. And, and are, sometimes I can identify yeah. with them.
0: And sometimes them... Uh, you know, with and small, which we'll get into later, uh, the use of drugs is seen as a way to be sociable and right. be within content and make money. Right. And it's not really something that they're seeing about as a vice to them that's, you know, creating a lot of personal and mental health problems as for some other musicians that see chronic use becomes chronically bad. Um, but specifically, there's a lot of musicians that are then using uh, this form of music as a form of medium to reach out to their audiences to almost say like, Hey, like this is what's going on. I'm going to make a song about it. If you listen to it, thank you for supporting me. Mm-hmm. And exactly, uh, it's exactly. almost, it's almost like a journey story for them to basically say, keep following my journey. It's, o- it's honestly interesting that you bring that fact up because
1: a lot of these in- artists that we're going to talk about today um, drop a hit song. And within months of dropping that hit song, they die.
0: Some of them, Some most of them. them, but most of them, yeah, that, is, we're, that we're looking at. Which is
1: kind of bad. You know, the fact that... Well, let's look at this. Look, at, Let's look at this ironically. Rehab. Amy Winehouse is singing about her issues with alcohol. The song is called the Rehab. Rehab is a place that you go to get better, to get healthy, to get clean. Um, and ultimately, a couple months later, she's found dead in her hotel room by her bodyguard. And the a coroner essentially said that she had drank herself to death yeah so i mean it's mental health she wasn't happy she was very anxious to be on on stage she was under a great amount of stress
0: she wasn't eating all, wasn't all eating. these she factors together yeah
1: you know all of these factors on top of of being this icon for the public um was sort of detrimental to her health and i mean this is a great transition to go toward and talk toward we can talk
0: a little bit about Kurt Kirk Cobain. Kirk yeah. Kurt Cobain. You know, so with Kurt Cobain, uh, he he was a very angst type of child uh, mm-hmm. growing up. Uh, he had a very happy childhood up until around when he was nine when his parents divorced, and that's when he started developing uh, depression. Uh, a lot of his... Uh, one when he started writing music is at a young age but it wasn't until later on when he started actually performing himself as a musician Uh, but a lot of his teenage angst I think came from that divorce that's when he started being more unhappy Uh, that's what he said in many interviews Um, Cobain struggled with things such as heroin and valium and uh This seemed to be a way for him to, you know, get away from his depression and uh, as well as dealing with chronic stomach pains that he Mm -hmm. had talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, So with a lot of stuff, he he acted very violent and chaotic and was sporadic, almost bipolar, which I I don't think he was reported being bipolar. But a lot of the tendencies that we see that uh, shown from him describe a bipolar person. Mm Uh, you know, very has ups and downs, very big highs with very big lows and, uh, ended up with him committing suicide with a shotgun.
1: Well, I mean, if you think about, let's think about his music, right? So obviously, uh, after nine years old, he experiences this shift in reality that his parents don't love each other and they're no longer together. And that clearly took a toll on Kurt. Um, and now he has to sort of figure out who he is after this divorce uh, and he starts dealing with depression. And at a very young age. At a very young age. Yeah. And he never really deals with it. But what he does is he uses music as a way to sort of cope and mm-hmm. express yeah. himself. Before him
0: before the use deals. of drugs. Before the use so he of drugs. Argued, arguably,
1: you know, Kurt, he had issues with, I, I believe he had a couple times where um, the police were called for domestic issues. Where there, he'd be screaming and freaking out, breaking yeah. things um and if you it's interesting because if you if you've listened to his music and you really break his music down it's very emotional it's very uh high energy um sometimes melancholy and then sometimes, sometimes it's yes. angry mm-hmm. yeah it's he's living the rebel life he's like no i won't i won't conform to your society that i don't fit in this society It's not for me and i'm not happy
0: yeah and i think i think uh you know what adds to that too is once he was basically called uh the voice of generation x he hated that terminology and how he was being framed because he didn't he didn't want to be framed within the institutions of how music rock stars live and how uh, you know the institutions want to paint them mm-hmm. he wanted to just do his own thing and just live his life make music makes make people happy for the music he was making but he didn't realize that his career would launch so abruptly and so mainstreamly because he was basically becoming this mainstream artists that although his music wasn't mainstream uh in a general sense his style of music of punk rock and teenage angst was coming out and a lot of people liked it and a lot of people were feeling this kind of emotions from not only other people's like feel like saying like oh like kurt's just like me like i'm depressed my parents got divorced f this f that like how are we going to deal with it and by seeing someone who is expressing all this within their music that's what was attractive, of him to other people who were fans of him. Exactly. But he just didn't like it. Exactly,
1: but it's not. It's not only that he didn't like it. I think um, what we're we're on track with sort of the the fact that these musicians are taking how they feel, they're putting it out in the public, and that's what the public's really grabbing onto because I think uh, it's relatable, and the uh, fans are identifying with the artist, saying, "I have felt like this before too," and um i thank you for creating this music because maybe you know it makes them feel a certain type of way that that they wouldn't have if they hadn't listened to the song or the song helps them sort of understand the, their own emotional turmoil which is beautiful in a way but then when you sort of focus on curbing's life or curbing's K- life as an individual um toward the end of his career that's when he really takes a downfall uh I remember reading at one point he had gone, or had been approached by both family and friends, and essentially they wanted to get him clean, help him out, um, bring him into rehab, and you know he was in complete denial. He's like, I don't need this. You guys are overreacting. This is stupid. This isn't what I need. Um, and so he was really struggling with just the fact that his family was calling him out. And I think he, I think he was sort of at ends meet and backed into a corner. And, and what we've seen, you know, in terms of today, like, you don't really approach somebody and attack them and be like, you know, you're a fuck-up. You, know, yeah. you, you have a drug issue, and you need to deal with it. You need, yeah. we, and we, 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 we don't, don't know if, like... like,
0: like the thing is, I, what I was going to say is, you, you don't know what happens behind closed doors. You don't know, like, what his parents or family or friends were really saying, and because we're not them, we can't really understand exactly in that moment what they were trying to get across him. But sometimes it's tough love that comes into play. Like, sometimes just by saying and being unconditionally loving someone and saying, Oh, things are going to be better. I'm going to help you. You can't always help people. You have to sometimes give them tough love and say, Hey, like you need to figure this out. You need to get help. Here are the resources, but you need to do it for yourself. And, uh, personally, we don't know exactly what he was going through, but I think a lot of the music that he was putting out and the content he was creating reflected some of the, you know, emotional strife that he was going through. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff in his lyrics that talk about things that, you know, leading up to, you know, ultimately his suicide, uh, from the, from the song, for example, for the song lithium, he says, Sunday morning is every day for all I care. Uh, and I am not scared. Light my candles in a daze. Cause I found God, uh, lyrics like that just make you think like what was going through his head. Sunday morning is every day for all I care what's something that people do on sunday morning? they go to church. Mm-hmm. You know, they're recovering from a hangover for most college kids. Um it's a day where you can relax. You're not really worried about things. You're watching football. Uh you're trying to just enjoy the moment and like you don't want sunday to end almost. Um and he's but basically he's saying I'm not scared for it to end. Uh he's in the stays he's found god. Um not exactly sure what he was writing for, but from an interpretation standpoint it makes it seem like he, a lot was going through his head. And whether that was influenced by drugs, I don't know. It could have been. He's had multiple overdoses throughout his life. And you don't know if he's been affected. Like, pre- potentially when he was having an overdose and he was revived, he may have thought that he's seen God and he wanted to write about it. You never know.
1: Well, so what I will say, sort of going off of that, is I, I read an um, interview that was actually from his wife, Courtney Love. Uh, They interviewed her and sort of asked about uh, the last couple months um, before he passed away. And she was actually in rehab when he passed away. So essentially what happened, um, he was living in this really melancholy state. Um, He was sort of up and down in terms of his mood. Uh, I, I think friends and family were easily able to interpret when he was having an off day. And at one point he goes and he sees one of his buddies on, uh, I think his last name was Carlson. Um, and, and so Kurt had gone to him um, prior to this specific moment. Yeah, they're, they're friends. And they yeah, they were friends. Uh, they hung out all the time. They, they were on the phone a lot. Uh, I remember um, Carlson talking about that. Um, but Kurt had borrowed guns from him before. So when yeah. Kurt sort of went to go borrow a gun from him, he's like, Oh, this is, this is kind of weird, but like, he seems like he's okay in the head right now. Like, uh, and, essentially Kurt's reasoning was hey like someone's trying to break into my house yet at the same time you know I, I, I argue that one of these these songs that are coming out like I swear that I don't have a gun yeah. in the song that we just sort of talked about and the lyrics, lyrics that were associated uh, are, are large red flags Regardless of those red flags, though, and I'm not trying to blame his buddy, because obviously...
0: He didn't know. Yeah, I mean, you unless you really never unless, know
1: what's going through somebody's head. Yeah, it,
0: Unless know. Kurt, like, confided in him, like, hey, like, yeah, I like, need yeah. a gun. So, like, essentially,
1: yeah. but what's crazy is instead of loaning him a gun, they go down to the gun store and they buy shotgun, a shotgun, a 20-gauge, yeah. um, with shotgun shells. And um, Kurt goes and he drops that gun off and he checks himself in rehab. So this is kind of a weird state that's going on yeah right because he goes and buys this gun which ultimately he takes his life with but then he goes and checks himself in a rehab so i think right there if we really break that situation down he
0: he knew yeah he
1: knew he was not well yeah and he wanted to get better
0: because he knew right after he got this gun, he's like, oh shit, now I have this. Yeah, like, now, now he has. The it's now his reality has shifted to being like, like hey, like, all right, now it's my choice whether I do this or not and follow through. So by, he understood and by checking himself in the rehab, I think he knew like something was really wrong, but I don't think it, it helped him.
1: So, well, he, la- I think he lasts two days yeah. in rehab um, before ultimately jumping the fence and um, heading toward his own property. Uh, he actually it's it's interesting because a, a visitor writes uh, in the interview that I was reading. Um, I saw Kurt just before uh, we found him because he he was missing for almost two and a half days uh, before they found him um, in his greenhouse above the garage of his home. But they saw him at the rehab facility, and it was it, it's kind of strange because he seemed like he was high spirited and at peace.
0: He's putting on a facade, basically. I don't know if it's a facade or... He wanted he people to think that he was fine.
1: Yeah. He was going to take his own life. And that brought him peace because the world wasn't good to him. And yeah. all of these cries for help weren't really
0: helping him. Yeah. Um, and, a, and a lot of uh, the lyrics that we see that Cobain writes about, uh, it shows a lot of distaste that he has in the world. And uh, while also critically analyzing like what it means to carry on with relationships, ending relationships, ending relationships, and uh, what one does with one's time within this world, and a lot of his music uh, that's inspired by like what he's doing in his real day to day life is uh, brought into his music, and because his death was basically from dealing with mental health issues as well as coping through drug use. Um, All this combinations of these things from the outside world, his distaste, uh, what he found throughout his life and what he like wasn't finding. He saw the world as a very negative place and that's where he wanted to write about it. Whether that was through his drug use or mental health, he wanted to just write about it, sing about it, make good music from it. And I don't think he liked how the world responded and we could also ask uh, how did they respond cuz
1: a lot of people loved his music a lot of people loved his music loved but his i don't th- i don't think he but wanted didn't it hear to hear his message is I don't... really what we're getting at right yes. like similar to amy winehouse it's like oh you know they want me to go to rehab but i don't want to i
0: think that basically with kurt his, he wanted his message to be heard for its uh the duality that it has not only from a music aspect but from a message aspect and because he was launched into this mainstream media being shown on MTV, late nights, and doing all these big time interviews. Uh, he, he thought that his music was gonna be only at that surface level, where it would just be the tune. Yeah, the tune. N- the tune, the, the uh, all the feelings that you get bad. from it, but not the actual message that he wanted people to pull out. And he has, has had a lot of true fans, still, still true fans today, who you know preach about a lot of his messages that he, that he uh, has put out and discussed. About relationships and uh, drugs and finding God, uh, so obviously a lot of stuff he's uh, he's roughly the
1: 90s, but we, we could go far as far back like the Rolling Stones uh, yeah. 1960s era with Brian Jones, yeah, uh, so to talk a little bit about him?
0: yeah, so with Brian Jones, if you don't know him, Jones was actually the one who started and formed the Rolling Stones, and uh, Jones started to become alienated from his band. Uh, because of stints of alcoholism mm-hmm. And his ability to perform Was going down And he just really wasn't as invested As he once used to be uh, In the band that he once formed uh, So he was largely the drugs And he, people thought that he epi- Epitomized the rock and roll Stereotypes of party hard uh, Drinking Drugs, playing music uh, And that Leads into this kind of concept of Live fast and die young Um, that eventually, you know, ended up him dying too young. Uh, So he developed this alcohol and drug problem uh, around the late 1960s and uh, in 1969 the Stones had asked him to leave the group because of his inability to perform and uh, the kind of mark that he was leaving on the group. And Jones when he was forming this band, when he, he traveled to Europe, He and traveling throughout Europe trying to find people, and he actually put out an ad campaign to uh, make the band. Um, He basically was trying to form a band that was more of a blues style. And uh, once they uh, got a little bit of uh, tension and a little bit of the ball moving with the band, playing gigs, uh, they got picked up with a record label and uh they ended up getting a manager and the manager saw a lot of potential with them but he didn't think the direction was correct and he wanted to shift that direction to be more on the rock and roll side of things mm-hmm. because of the voice of mcjagger was so rock and roll and so i don't know it just grabs you when you hear mcjagger sing alongside the you know the bass and the guitar and the, those drums uh you really can like just feel the emotion and feel how the style of it is rock and roll mm-hmm. um but Jones just didn't like this and he lost a lot of like taste for the band. Um, So in one of his later songs with the band, the song, No Expectations, uh, he plays in it. He's not exactly, he's co-writing it. Uh, He adds stuff to it. Uh, There's stuff taken out of it, but ultimately when it comes out, uh, the song basically talks about not having any expectations for whoever's singing's life and which direction the road is going to take them. The uh, the song also talks about the, this peace of mind that has been disoriented by a loved one who has left them, and uh, I think that the lyric, our love is like our music, it's here and then it's it's gone. This kind of symbolizes how Brian Jones is with the Stones. He started this band, he put it all together, he's kind of the one who's like the leader to this band, and... He didn't see the direction or expectation that this band had for the future, and he didn't expect the future outcome of the band to be so rock and roll. Uh, Later, uh, he helped record this, but afterwards, I believe it was within the year that it was released, the band pushed him out of the band, and he ultimately uh, died... Uh, he was found dead at the bottom of the pool. Later, right? It was about a month after he, uh, yeah. about a month not, after not he left the after. band. Um, but but he, yeah,
1: it's also interesting because obviously you know he, he was not happy and um, he was obviously singing about the fact that his band, the band that he well, started, he wasn't
0: exactly singing, so he, well, it was some the, of his the, lyrics the, put the, in the, the songs. Lyrics. yeah arguably he, arguably he was a similar. guitarist,
1: yeah um, but they were singing as a band. About, and especially coming from um, Jones himself, they're talking about the fact that this isn't what we founded this band on. Like, yeah, he had a completely different image as an individual. Yeah, as to what he was trying to create.
0: Yeah, and when when something when a vision's in your head about what you want to see and be made to happen. You don't exactly get the same outcome when you put it down on paper or you try to actually make it. It's always going to be a little bit different. You can't be perfect, and you have to be a little bit flexible, and I don't think he was flexible enough to see that, as well as his use of alcohol was getting in the way of mm-hmm. making that direction positive. He didn't have as much of a voice after he was kind of uh, delegitimized by his bandmates. Yeah. you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's super unfortunate, and it belittles
1: people. Um, you know, when you have a passion for something and you start a band to that degree, you, know, you want to see it out for you know, all that you want exactly, it to be because you created it to, to sort of grow this beautiful creation. Um, and ultimately you lose touch with it because it's popularized, which is kind of a tragic, tragic ending for him. You know, he, he lost touch with that creation and it ultimately became something that he wasn't planning on it becoming. Um, but well, I think what we should do is switch over to hip hop.
0: Yeah, let's. Turn, we take, talked a little bit about like rock yeah.
1: and, and the early pop, I guess.
0: Let's take a little turn for uh, the better. Yeah. My yeah. man, yeah. baby, yeah. small. Like, uh, so the, uh, so the
1: Notorious I B.I.G. Made, done, A.K.A. Christopher Wallace. Yeah, uh, <laughs> he's actually gone down in 1997, 24 years old. Uh, Christopher had, we'll call him Biggie so that everybody knows what's going on. Um, Biggie had a tough ringing out. I mean, he grew up in the hood. Um, Eastside, mm. and uh, was involved with in gang violence and, and the drug sales um, surrounded by prostitution um, people getting gunned down all the time
0: he didn't but have that great of a, a family life he did not have a great family and life. He, he cared they, about his mom he cared a lot about his family and, yeah. and his family was not the most wealthiest and what he did was when he was at a young age he quit school completely he was actually going to the same school that uh jay-z yep. uh I'm pretty sure Diddy went to. I'm yep. uh, not sure. Don't quote me on that. Yep. Uh, but a lot of famous uh, rappers. I can pull it up real quick. Uh, so, he went to the same school that... Oh, God.
1: I, th- I mean, you think he was? He started selling drugs at... He was 12 years he old. He was 12 years old. And he actually ended up quitting school at,
0: really, yeah. 12. Yeah, so th- he went to the same school that uh, uh, Jay-Z, DMX, Busta Rhymes had all gone to. Uh, and it was just, it was the, the, uh, what was it, the George Westinghouse Career and Technical Education High School, so he had the opportunity to go and enroll in the school, and potentially extremely boost his uh, lyricism, his, you know, his IQ, all these things that you learn in a high school education, but he dropped out because of, like, family stability and financial stability so
1: it was it's also not unknown that there was a lot of um uh, hustler uh influence yeah and there's a huge hustler mentality back then so it's like um you know basically fuck the system let's go make it for our own and i think i think biggie got wrapped into that at an early age because he talks about how it you know his mom probably wished she had an abortion. In, in I think a couple of his songs, yeah. You know, you know, basically I'm, I'm a fuck up. My mom probably wished she had an abortion at this point, cause yeah. he, he, you know, he's selling like crack. He drops out of school, and she's like, "You need to be in school right now." I don't know what the what the gig is, but I think he got like I said, he got sucked into that uh, community that I'm gonna hustle. I'm gonna make my name for myself. I'm gonna make the money. I'm gonna be rich someday, uh, and he had the ambition to do it at a young age, but ultimately he ends up getting caught. Uh, selling co- uh, cocaine in North Carolina I think it was 1989
0: Yep and he was only 16
1: 16 years old um, And you know he, he had been c- recording A little bit before then um, But it's interesting too because uh, Around this time I, Biggie drops a song called Suicidal Thoughts Yeah, And the opening line Is when I die fuck it I want to go to hell cause I'm a piece of shit It ain't hard to fucking tell mm-hmm. Don't make sense going to heaven with the goody goodies dressed in white. I like black tims and black hoodies. Yeah. So I mean, what's right, your interpretation of that? I honestly think basically what he's talking about is I'm a sinner. Yeah. It, it's not necessarily that he likes that. It's it's. Is that mentality? Yeah, he's amounting himself to hell, be, in, in in basically dooming himself to hell because he's like. I've already sinned so much in this community. Might as
0: well make it a lifestyle. Yeah. I might
1: as well make money on this. And then later yeah. on, I'll deal with the repercussions of my accidents in this life. Yeah. Um, so clearly, I mean, he was definitely afraid. to a face You don't really. Maker. You know <laughs> what I mean? But,
0: um, and, uh, you know, he just, he, had, he had, was known for, uh, you know, rapping to entertain his community and his friends. and. Yeah i think that was part of saying like hey why don't i just talk about this and rap about it and actually like let me see if i can make some money off of this and uh right right after right about right after he got released from prison uh he dropped a rap demo tape under the alias biggie smalls mm-hmm. and uh eventually he had to change his name to the notorious big mm-hmm. because there was some uh legal issues that yeah. he met with that uh yeah. that name uh, but then um there was a point in time where he recorded uh uh, at his time with bad boy records it was a brief time that he was with them yeah uh and it included a, a remix of mary j blige's real love and he released this in august of 1992 uh so just a i believe yeah two years after or no, three years after he was released oh no two years because he was in jail for almost a year yeah yeah um and that uh featured a guest verse from him and uh, it basically changed uh, this whole direction of how he was being viewed by the world. Because then he was starting to be seen like, oh, this guy actually has talent. Like, he's oh, hard. He's you know, hard. This,
1: this guy should be respected because he's, gone to, he, you know, he's yeah. been to prison uh, on drug charges. Um, yeah. He's hanging out with gangsters. He's dropping hip-hop music.
0: Yeah. Um, and this ultimately led up this whole mentality. It was... Oh, Lead up to his uh, first big hit single called "Party and Bullshit." Party and bullshit. Yeah.
1: And I mean, let's just think about that song right now. So that party and bullshit is the life that Biggie Smalls was living. Exactly. He'd party at night and he deal with bullshit during the day. Yeah. And that halfway through that song, or cl- probably closer to the end, a fight breaks out in the middle of the song. They're like.
0: Yo, Biggie, chill. Yo,
1: Biggie, chill. And and Uh, he's like, motherfucker, like, beat. They're all, you know. He's like, don't don't mess with tonight. And then the beat just drops and they go right back into the song. I think that right there is he's saying, I live this lifestyle and this lifestyle is every day. Yeah. Because everybody just goes right back into the beat. The hip hop keeps going. The the, uh, lyrics keep, they continue. um, And it's all about the middle of this break. Which is violent. Yeah. You know what I mean? But man, these it's
0: that gangster lifestyle that he was sort of living since he was 12. Exactly. And it all adds up into this, you know, all the bullshit that comes from life, incorporated into the party of, you know, rapping and his lifestyle that he was starting to live uh, at this early age. It's uh, also
1: interesting because if we compare uh, Biggie to our artists that we talked to earlier, um, mm-hmm. I don't think... He got into. I mean, he loved to rap, but he didn't just just get into rap because it was a freaking hobby for him. No, I mean, no. he realized early on that he did talent and that he could make some money on it. And he needed and he a way to make it. Yeah, to pull himself out of the hood. Yeah. You know, a song. Uh, I think it's Juicy.
0: Yep, Juicy. Yeah. Um, where it was released in talk, 1994, about, and talking just, about the glamorous yeah, right life. You know
1: what I mean? Yeah. It, it was all a dream. You used to read Ward Up magazine, Salt and Pepper, and Heavy D up in yeah. the magazine. Like he's, he's he's just sitting there and he's fantasizing, putting himself in that situation, yeah. being on the magazine being in the limousine,
0: throwing the best parties up in the hills. Exactly. You know what I mean? And after the after he released Juicy, uh, this is the one that went, uh, I believe, yeah, it went double platinum and then quadruple platinum later that year. He really realized, like, oh, like, damn, like, I'm getting, like, very popular very quickly mm-hmm. and I'm making a lot of money from it mm-hmm. and uh, there's a lot of people behind me who want to see me keep putting out music, people that want me to be on their music and be featured and he was seeing a lot of uh, good feedback from the message he was talking about, which was money, women, and drugs. Yeah, exactly. And that was his lifestyle that he was living. And it added to the content that he was putting out. It was his content. was mm-hmm. his life. Well, like, when he
1: drops the song, Ready to Die, um, I think Biggie was at a point in his life where he had lost a couple relationships and was dealing with tension.
0: One of his friends was shot and killed.
1: <clears throat> One of his friends was shot and killed. And... Um, you know, basically, if you th- if you think about that, I mean, I've never lost a friend to such, you know, as, as such a situation. But
0: it's not Biggie he was wrapped
1: up now. in his life, and one of his boys got shot. Yeah, you know what I mean. And he's like, I, at this point, Smalls is questioning, is this even the life I want to live? You know, I'm making all this money and my friends are dying around me and you know ultimately what is this life if i don't have that family to share it with
0: but also when you're at a young age i think this is what also drove him to just staying on course to where uh he was going was when you're at a young age you never think oh that's gonna happen to me you always think it'll never happen to me and uh they were enjoying life they're young in their 20s you're making all that money you're just gonna keep doing what you're doing living the lifestyle that you have you want to be successful keep doing that um but basically he was becoming like the like rapper for the east coast and resurging that east coast hip-hop lifestyle that people were listening to really making a name for that and people were really digging it and it started to get mainstream he was getting picked up by all these different um labels who wanted him all these different uh uh, journalists who wanted to know like what was going on with the uh, this whole community of people because it was so different. It was hip hop had never been this big. No, it had never
1: been this big, and you know he was one of the you could call him the founding fathers. You know, alongside almost like Tupac. Yeah. Like these yeah. guys were the guys that took hip hop that had been created just yeah. before them. Tupac before him and blew but, it up. Yeah, I mean they blew it up.
0: Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about like their relationship. And how it also, it revolved around, you know, this lifestyle of drugs, money, and women. But Biggie saw Tupac as a mentor almost. And when, yeah. when they met, they met at a drug dealer's party. How, yeah. how convenient. Yeah. It's un- unbelievable
1: that it just happened to be that way. You know, it's kind of interesting because two guys that arguably made it, yeah, I mean, they're making plenty of money. You know, you, you, you have to ask that question. Um, why didn't they leave the lifestyle? I know they're making money on it, but you don't necessarily have to be living the lifestyle to, to rap about it. But
0: what else were they going to do? That's the thing. And that's what I think yeah. is interesting because, you know,
1: their entire lives, like Tupac advocated against being a gangster. And then Biggie Smalls was the guy that was rapping about being a gangster and how it sucked and how he's a piece of shit because he's selling drugs. And, he, and he's putting his mom in these situations that she has to defend her son because he's selling drugs and rapping and being a gangster. But then he finally makes it.
0: Yeah. And then he's like, oh, it's worth it. But I think what's crazy is he
1: just amounts himself to that community. He's like, this is all I'll ever be. Even though I have all this money, that's all I am. Yeah.
0: I, and we don't, we don't know that, but that's from our perspective. I mean,
1: why else wouldn't he leave? You yeah. know? And it's, it's, he was young. It, exactly. And I think...
0: If maybe, maybe if he was, I don't know, now Eminem, why doesn't he leave? He's old as shit. <laughs> yeah, but, but he's I mean, still I trying mean, to rap. And he... he ten, for me, I don't think he's putting out the greatest music he could be putting out, but he's trying to do that because that's what he knows. And, that,
1: and Eminem, in a lot of ways, I mean, he did make it out of, you know...
0: <laughs> he went through... He, a pretty know, shitty situation. Yeah, and we, we'll, we can talk about that at another time know, if you know. we want to.
1: But, um... um but,
0: but he was... But Biggie was young.
1: Exactly. And... 24 years
0: old when he died. Yeah. And he was shot to death, so... Yeah. In a drive-by shootout that still is unsolved till this day.
1: He's, uh... Who do you want to talk
0: about right now? I think I think we're. I mean, if you want to <coughs> kind of wrap it up and kind That's of right get, it. yeah, let's kind of try to like summarize. You mm-hmm. know what the connection between all these musicians is, and I think what the connection is is not having a perfect lifestyle. There's never a perfect lifestyle, and there's never a. <laughs> you good?
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't want to sound like Darth Vader. Oh, it's all. <laughs> all don't hey, i zoom in. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're good, bro. No,
0: you're, you're chilling. Um, but yeah, basically, it's no one has a perfect lifestyle, and these people have talent, obviously. Like you, you can't just make it with no talent and not have a voice and not put work into your craft, which these musicians did. It's the struggles and the, the shit times and the, you know, their addictions that resonated in their music that they were putting out and the content they were producing, And this kind of molded how their music uh reflected out towards the world and it molded them to be interactive with their own music and say all right i put out this song this is how the audience reacted am i going to continue doing this kind of music am i going to keep living this lifestyle such as biggie smalls keep putting out music about drugs money women sex all these different things or am I going to change and try to be non-conforming like Kurt Cobain, where he not made not only like very like party rock songs, but he also made very deep and emotional music that by some wasn't picked up in the best ways, but was still making music that reflected who he was. So I think that for a lot of these musicians, the reflection upon their content comes from not only themselves and saying how the response was, but also how the audiences are responding to the music.
1: I also think their music would have changed <clears throat> if they were happier.
0: Oh, yeah. And for a lot of them like for a lot of this their time when they were making all this good music, making good money, they were they were very happy with all different parts of their times uh doing this stuff and making music, putting all this stuff out. Nothing's ever all bad. Nothing's always all good. <clears throat> uh, you guys are making me cop now. <laughs> Dude, I God, it's drying
1: here. I'm drying out.
0: Um, but <clears throat> basically, you know, you're going to have happy moments. You're going to have sad moments. And a lot of these musicians, they talked a lot about the hardship and the struggle. And also sometimes they talk about a lot of the happy times too. So we can't forget that either. Um, I but, think what yeah. we need
1: to do as fans, mm. we need to hear... The message that these artists are trying to convey a hundred percent and maybe take a greater initiative to change these hardships that these people are dealing with um whether that be societal stigmas for instance um
0: people don't just reach out to musicians unless they're fan mail exactly um i don't know re- recently uh the drummer of uh acdc just recently passed away my dad actually when he was younger they had a a fan uh p.o box that you could write to and hopefully the band members would write you back and he he actually wrote the drummer and said hey something along the lines of like hey like I love how you drum like you're amazing you inspire me to be a better drummer and growing up my dad actually was a drummer in his own band and now he has a set and he'll jam out in the basement whenever he has free time um but this guy was what was his name? Uh, I'm gonna probably be hated for not knowing this. Uh, fuck. Uh, uh, Phil Rudd. Phil, was it Phil Rudd? Who just re- Oh no! Is um, not Phil Rudd. Oh my gosh, the drummer for uh, a Rush. Great. I just screwed the whole story. But yeah, uh, Neil Pert. Who's the drummer for Rush? He's an insane drummer. Sorry for messing it up, but the, Neil Peart. My dad wrote this letter to him, and he responded. He sent a, a letter back to my dad. He said thanks so much for the support. Uh, some some of the lines was the lines of "I appreciate your appreciation,"
1: mm-hmm.
0: and a lot of these musicians need that appreciation. I think that's something that's been lost with uh, a lot of social media and these these standards that we hold not to reach out to uh, these big artists and because we don't expect for them to respond. And something like that is very like reflective upon the person saying, wow, this person actually wrote me back and said that he appreciates how I appreciate you.
1: I think, you know, some closing remarks, um, you know, we, we've had a few artists go into rehab recently. Um, you know, Demi Lovato, Miley Cyrus, whatever it be. For, for whatever, you know.
0: Whatever reasons. Whatever
1: reasons. Um, they should be able to go help themselves, work on themselves.
0: Without the back, interruption.
1: And come back to, even, even if they have to put their music career on hold, they should be able to leave and come back and still, you know, um, be welcomed by the, the same crowd because they're the same person. They ultimately just chose to survive instead of being consumed by this facade that they had to live, um, that ultimately didn't make them happy, you know. uh, And nearly killed them. And nearly killed them. I mean, it really did nearly kill them. So uh, our job, obviously the artists are producing all this great quality music, you know, serious content that everybody's loving. Um, But in the end, you know, as fans, we sort of have an obligation to check in on on these icons and be like, hey,
0: what's going on? With
1: Mac for instance, writes yeah. that song self care. Yeah. He's in a freaking um casket under the ground. Be like, hey Mac What
0: the what's, what's going on, bro? Up, man? Yo, uh, kind of up, yo right? what's going on in your head you man? You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: And then basically we, we form this community that's not so um abrasive for those that need help and we just go, you know what dude? we only
0: appreciate people after the fact. Keep
1: making your music but go to fucking rehab. Like help yourself out dude because clearly you're not happy so figure out what you got to do to be happy and then and then we essentially we finish the message that these artists have brought to us with it's okay that you're not okay and we support you yeah i think that's the direction we need to go in as as a nation um especially with our artists that you know feel that they need to live it hard until their last day and then after that they're just remembered as somebody that overdosed they could yeah. be remembered as somebody that faced um, adversity and triumphed over their own um, innate turmoils that sort of dominated for years of their life. So it is interesting because a lot of this music is bringing us these um, individuals that feel broken, but you know we also can play a part in helping them fix themselves and put themselves back together by sort of reassuring that not everybody's okay. And even if you're an icon, you're not fucking
0: Superman. You know? Exactly. Um, just for our viewers at home, uh, if you feel like you've uh, been touched by t- today's recording or you know, are looking for that extra help, I'm just going to give you a couple numbers that you can reach out to toll-free. Uh, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. And if you're having any uh, problems with drug addiction uh toll free number for confidential help at 855-385-4402 lastly there's a mental health hotline that you can call whether you're dealing with depression anxiety anything like that uh let me just find the number real quick sorry about that folks Sorry. I can can cut out. That's
1: why I was just quiet.
0: Now's a good time to call. Okay. And for those of you who are dealing with any mental health issues, whether that's... And for any of you guys that are dealing with any mental health issues, whether that's anxiety, depression, any sorts of things that you feel like you're just not in your mental headspace in the right place to be at this moment, toll-free number, please call 877 968 8491 thank you guys so much for uh listening to us today i think that we uh all got a lot out of this conversation and we look forward to doing more in-depth discussions with uh you guys and yeah i think today was a good talk chris thanks for sitting in my name is chris calder and i'm dan Safsell. and stay beautiful